0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of You Matter. This is episode thirteen. Hi there, welcome back to You Matter. Today's podcast is one that I've been wanting to do for a long time with my friend Dr. Susanna Petchi, who is an A and GP. Also, an expert on the topic of trauma, something that has been talked about and thought about a lot over the last couple of years, mainly due to the pandemic. But it's certainly an area that is gaining lots more attention and lots more interest. And when you listen to uh, Susanna speak uh, as an absolute expert on this topic, I think I think you'll like me realize that it's it's something that um, needs more attention, more understanding, and um, hopefully something that we'll be able to incorporate within the more general world of healthcare in years to come for the the benefit of all. So sit back, have a listen to Susanna, who is just a a, font of amazing knowledge in this field of trauma. Enjoy the podcast, and I'll be back at the end. Hello and welcome to session 13 of You Matter and as I said in the intro I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome my friend Dr Susanna Pucci, who is a doctor, a GP in a and but also an expert on the subject of trauma. So before we get stuck into the podcast itself Susanna could I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about how you got to be working in this field.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jo. Thanks for the opportunity of talking to you today. Um, So I've been a doctor for well over 20 years and always been interested in mental health. But it wasn't until really six years ago when I became unwell myself and was diagnosed with complex PTSD that I really understood what that meant. Um, Or rather, I didn't actually understand what it meant.
0: Mm.
1: I didn't understand my symptoms. I literally thought I was losing my mind and it was terrifying. And that led me to try and explore this and understand this so that I could really heal myself. That was the main driver. And Mm -hmm. then through that exploration and doing a master's in psychological trauma, it was like putting on glasses and I could see things in a completely different way. And it's completely changed my practice. And so now I integrate that kind of trauma focused lens um, with my work as a clinician, working as a GP in A&E, in and out of hours GP, um, and I've also been training in functional medicine, and I use that functional medicine approach and lifestyle medicine to look at helping people to heal themselves when they've got ongoing vague symptoms that are likely due to previous psychological trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, I also teach around this um, because I just think it's so prevalent and the more we can get people to understand how psychological trauma comes up, how it manifests, and how to help people, just the better it's going to be all around.
0: Mm. Thank you. So, just to take it back a little bit, Susanna, trauma, the word trauma certainly has come into my vocabulary and awareness much, much more within the last two years. I mean, slightly before pandemic, actually, but there's, yeah. it's been something, a word that's been used a lot during the pandemic hasn't it and for people who you know might just be asking what actually do we mean by trauma how would how would you explain it to say um, someone who had no experience of it or perhaps a non-health professional?
1: yeah so it's a good question because I think it's become quite a a term a phrase that's been banded around quite a lot since Mm. the pandemic um so trauma in a kind of um traditional sense is a is a really dramatic injury okay. um so really dramatic event, and psychological trauma is looking at the kind of the psychological kind of more the psychological side of it but essentially it is somebody who experiences a traumatic event whether that is something that is physical or emotional it can be any number of things and it's it's whether somebody, it's also whether somebody has a perception of a, of a traumatic event about to happen. So the brain doesn't distinguish between an actual event or a threat or a perception of an event. And then it's what happens afterwards. So not everybody who experiences a traumatic event goes on to have consequences of psychological trauma. Mm. But it's it varies depending on what the event is and what happens and their surroundings. Then people go on to have a consequence. And that consequence is because the brain hasn't quite processed that event properly and hasn't filed it away properly. So the nervous system becomes really affected. And there's like a lingering um, in the nervous system. And remember, the nervous system is not just up here. It's throughout our bodies. So we have psychological symptoms, but also very much physical symptoms. And, And is
0: this, so I'm sort of rephrasing it in my own mind and thinking, obviously call it trauma for um because it's an easy phrase but it sounds like it should be really what you do with trauma or what your what your nervous system does with trauma so um is everything a malprocessing or is it is it like different versions of a normal process or are we when we talk about trauma are we talking about a malprocessing of trauma always
1: So, yeah, so it's it's understanding that initial response in the body so that um, so when people have either a perceived threat or or an actual threat to themselves, um, then the body goes through a survival response. So some people call it survival response. Sometimes it's called the stress response. Sometimes it's called the fight, flight, freeze response. It's all the same thing and that is a very normal response it's to get us to survive if we didn't have that response we wouldn't be here so Mm -hmm. our our bodies and brains need that process to for us to be around for us to survive but it's when that process isn't fully switched off and the memory of that event hasn't fully been kind of integrated and processed that's when there's a consequence Mm -hmm. so Trauma is, is another way of thinking about it is it's a normal response to an abnormal event.
0: Yeah. So it sounds so similar to how we would explain chronic pain processing um, in in physio. And presumably in the pandemic, um, the opportunities for processing have been problematic. Absolutely. Yeah. And potentially why we might have heard more about it and talked more about it. Yeah. Um. So... Yeah, I mean, the, the pandemic is one reference point for this conversation, but uh, also there's this TV programme, isn't there, the serialisation of Adam Kay's book at the moment, This Is Going to Hurt. Um, and I know certainly myself and a lot of other health professionals read his book, gosh, that's about, about 10 years ago now, I think, isn't it, when it mm. came out, certainly some years ago that I read it. Um, but I've noticed there's been an awful lot of conversation on social media about it, mostly amongst health professionals maybe that's my bias because of my um who I'm in contact with on social media but um I've seen everything from this is going to hurt yes it did and I'm not going to watch it anymore um to you know perhaps non-health professionals talking about how it's opening their eyes um I don't know what what's your I know you've read the book and we were just discussing before we came on that we've seen some episodes but not all of it what what's your what's your thought about
1: the impact
0: of first of all the, the book and then maybe the tv serialization
1: I think it's um so I think it's really interesting I think um I remember my initial response when I saw the book and it and it being really um like it that it was a bestseller and ev- like lots of people were talking about it so it wasn't just my um, healthcare professional colleagues it was like everyone around me it was, it was one of those books that kind of everyone had read and everyone had an opinion on mm-hmm. and I remember just being really confused at it being badged a comedy and yes. I I, um, I got hold of a book and then actually one of my children gave it to me for my birthday they thought it'd be a great idea they were very little at the time mm-hmm. um, and I just didn't find it funny I just I just it because for me it was too realistic it was too much what i'd experienced so mm-hmm. i haven't done um so adam k was an obstetric gynecology registrar um i didn't train in obstetrics um and so i had to do part of that as my medical school training but as a qualified doctor um i didn't work in that area um and as my training as a gp i kind of stayed a level below that so i because i trained as a gp i became a gp registrar um and then on to be a gp but i did all as kind of sho level so there's kind of references in in the show about um the shos he works with Mm -hmm. and that experience of um being exhausted doing really long hours um A lot of the time I remember we were doing um, unofficial overtime, Um, but you know, it was just expected that we had to do it. Um, Being told you wouldn't get a reference if you didn't do it, um, which, you know, now you consider it just be ridiculous. You wouldn't, you know, never talk to someone like that. Um, And being in situations where there wasn't necessarily the senior cover so the way that in the show the consultant's always away um that's changed now so so just you know the the way that that was then is very different to how things are now so and there's advantages and disadvantages to that so um now there's a lot more senior cover around um which is good but as a consequence then people are working much more in a shift pattern so rather than working kind of 24 hours or over the weekend you'd be up for goodness knows how long with kind of snatches of sleep in between Mm -hmm. um there's now kind of you do day shifts and night shifts and early shifts and late shifts and although that's better from a sleep perspective and it's obviously better that you've got senior more senior cover around you're not as much attached to a team So what used to happen, what happened when I was training is that you were part of what was called a firm, which is with a consultant who had a registrar and then an SHO and then a house officer, and you were Mm -hmm. kind of in a unit and you belonged to that team and everyone kind of knew where you were and you got to know those doctors and they got to know you before you rotate because as as part of your medical training, you have to keep Mm -hmm. rotating around different specialities and there was much more camaraderie around that um and now because of the shift patterns you're attached to a speciality rather than kind of a consultant so it's much more fragmented so that support and that camaraderie that we hadn't really relied on and kind of really lent into for support that's now really lacking so Mm -hmm. i know now where um Yes, you've got the senior support, which is good. And there's more sleep, which obviously is good. That camaraderie and that kind of that structure around it, that's lacking. So um, I know some juniors are feeling quite lost around that and not, right. not having that clear structure. Yeah, there's the cynical side of me when, when
0: you said it's changed. And now, you know, the consultants are a lot more present and people are doing more equal shifts. Um, I immediately thought, oh, gosh, so does that mean all the poor SHOs of your young era um, now heading into consultant era don't get the payback that you would have got previously when you, you know I going people say I survived to this point and now I yeah
1: I mean it is actually I mean for me it's actually that is one of the reasons why I trained as a GP I mean that's very much so that um i really struggle with staying up overnight and and working over i mean as would anyone but (laughs) the um the shift pattern of of it's they started to bring in shift patterns as i was doing my training um my kind of later training and i really struggled from that switching day and night um Mm. And I started off training to be a paediatrician, so a children's doctor. And I could see they were talking about the training coming in that the, you know, in the future consultants would be then um living in you know staying overnight in the hospital and being in the hospital and and doing that shift pattern and I just thought that there's no way that I can do this for another 20 30 years like for me it needs to be a finite kind of time and that's I mean it's not the only factor There are many reasons why I left hospital medicine but that was one of the factors um yeah
0: so just going back to the humor side of the book and, and the tv program and you know adam kay is a very funny man and i believe he is uh, a comedian or um, mm. definitely no one would argue that he um has abilities with humor if you want to dissect it and <laughs> totally take the, the magic out of his humor but to me the book was full of i guess what would be called gallows humor yeah um, which you know i know that's quite a recognized survival strategy amongst medics isn't it Mm. so taking it back to trauma and processing mm. what are your views on um, the sort of the benefits versus the um, the problems associated with that that survival mechanism I guess
1: um I suppose I mean I suppose I just kind of if I can go back a step further mm. um that the the importance I think of this book and the program is that it's getting doctors it's it's like you I've seen a lot of kind of talk around it on social media within forums um talking about how and using the words of how their training was really traumatic and Mm. I think that there's been, I mean, it's a very normal trauma response to minimise and kind of diminish any traumatic events because that's how we cope and how we survive. So that people have kind of diminished it is very, you know, it's a normal response. But then to see it on the BBC or to see it on a bestseller list, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, it's there. And so it's harder to ignore. So people are starting to recognise actually how their training was traumatic and maybe how some of the things that they experienced were were really quite traumatic and so it's understanding that in the context of trauma that it's trauma or the kind of the consequences of trauma it doesn't necessarily need to be the person who's going through the event Mm -hmm. it can be if you're bearing witness to something Mm
0: -hmm. so if
1: you're bearing witness to repeated traumatic incidences or um repeated, um, you're hearing stories about um, repeated traumatic um, people describing their lives or incidents that are really traumatic or looking at images that are really traumatic, then you yourself as kind of as, as the observer can get affected. And that's then called secondary traumatic stress um, or vicarious trauma. Vicarious trauma is like a, a step along from secondary traumatic stress. And those symptoms are very much along the lines of post-traumatic stress disorder. And we really under-recognize that. Yeah. So um, that's where that's that becomes really important for healthcare professionals. And as you say, a coping mechanism is that release of having someone to share the circumstances, what's happened, mm-hmm. and part of that processing of the witnessing the trauma, bearing witness to the trauma is talking about it is that camaraderie so that shared that kind of sharing of that experience and normalizing it within the context of what's happening that can Mm -hmm. be really healing um so that gallows humor is something that is really important within that within that process of um of the, the kind of yeah that processing and healing um and so that it it minimizes the impact to the to the individual okay. healthcare professionals um but it's then um it's about it kind of staying contained yeah so the problem is that when that becomes witnessed by people who don't understand the context who don't work in that environment it can sound really callous and uncaring Mm. when from my experience you know it's something I've witnessed a lot in my you know well over 20 years working and training that the the people who talk in that way after you know extremely stressful periods of work uh, you know really difficult events happening at work are the kindest most compassionate doctors you know not every doctor is there is always a variety within every profession but I think it can give the impression that if people use gallows humor then they are they don't have a good bedside manner they're not compassionate they don't care about their patients when actually it's a really important kind of tool to use that doesn't mean that there's an excuse for um being cruel and unkind to patients or racism or anything like that that's Mm. not in any way condoning that or making excuses for that but just where that humor becomes edgy and and kind of that yeah that that phrase that gallows humor it's it's important to understand it within the context of where it's where it kind of comes from and where it starts.
0: Mm, That's really interesting that that's that's changed my view obviously a little bit because I guess I Wouldn't as a physio experience it in the moment when it's most useful. Mm. Um, And I can see how perhaps if there's a tendency to rely on it too much and too long after the event, it can then be almost a shutting down process um, or a um, a block to to good processing. Um, And maybe even you you then reading the book, which is obviously very post hoc and definitely not you hearing a doctor talking about that after a traumatic event has just happened. You know, maybe it's that's the difficult context because it's yeah. its best use is as you say in that almost immediate survival period just after an yeah. event. Absolutely. It's, you also made me think about a question I was going to ask you um, next about uh, about me as a physiotherapist, but I guess other clinicians and allied health professionals might relate to this: that sometimes when you watch or read things like this is going to hurt or you just hear medics talking to each other you have i've heard the response so often oh god what the hell am i worrying about then my my job as a physio is you know, manageable at hours um i don't have to deal with blood and gore and, and you know often life-threatening events i have nothing to complain about um and I, i'd love you to answer that but you you did say something which made me thoughtful in your last answer about it's that secondary trauma thing just being in an environment where you hear those things but I won't answer my own question <laughs> you tell
1: me what, what you think. No, but exactly exactly right so it's um I mean you could argue that um you know therapists are sat in a comfortable warm calm therapy room hmm. but it is very very recognized that therapists very much can experience secondary traumatic stress and vicarious trauma and mm. that's where the research around this really started actually and the idea of of it being um something that's relevant to healthcare professionals is relatively new i mean obviously it's relevant but the research and the comprehension that it's relevant that's relatively new mm. so it's it's it doesn't matter it's 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 what you hear and what you're exposed to and again, it's kind of the context around it. So, when you're saying you're not exposed to kind of, um, you know, blood and gore and, and, and life threatening events, if you are, you know, we're all healthcare professionals and allied healthcare professionals because we want to help. We have skills and a knowledge and a curiosity to help and enable the human body to to heal and to reach and live its full potential. And we all then specialize in different areas that we're interested within that. So if we are in an environment working where we can do what we have been trained to do, and it is along the realms of um, what we we trained and what we expected, and that we can work well within that, then it feels like we're doing our job well. So Mm -hmm. for example, if we are seeing patients, you know, if somebody has, um, uh, you know, some kind of accident or, or a massive heart attack or someone's bleeding terribly and they come into to an A&E department. When the team's there, you've got all the equipment, you're fully staffed, you, you immediately can help that person and you know you're doing everything to the best possible ability with the best possible care and you know then that that person is going to get the best possible aftercare then that feels good to be part of that Mm. and if you then have the ability to um chat and debrief with colleagues and have that camaraderie around you in that space to to just have a a chat if you need to then that again just helps to ease it Mm. um not to ease it but to kind of Um, to help process it and to help you then just yeah file that memory and process that working memory in it's part of your job and that's job well done and something you've done well and, and that you're really proud of doing and that's part of your work if however you're working in constraints where things are constantly changing for example in a pandemic where you know do you wear full ppe don't you do you resuscitate with ppe don't you um is it the right ppe Um, the staffing shortages that are rife throughout the NHS now, where um, ongoing aftercare and rehab isn't what we would like it to be, that's then very difficult because you're working in a very different environment to what you thought you would be training in. Mm. And if then, because there's so much pressure to work harder and faster and better, because there's less people around, less staff around, there is no space for the debriefing there isn't space to have that kind of camaraderie and that connection of oh that was a really tough case wasn't it and yeah you did this and i did this mm-hmm. and to just have that kind of debriefing then we internalize it and we take it home and we can see we like you know a very clear example that was talked about a lot within the pandemic when it was particularly bad Um, And I don't know who kind of came up with the idea where they started, but particularly around um, ITU departments, intensive care departments, that they had this idea of a wobble room, Mm. that they had a a kind of a safe space that was next to the department where staff could go in and just have a a moment to chat, to debrief, to just let go and let their emotions out. Mm. And just doing that in a very informal way was incredibly healing for those people and it's mm. that wasn't everywhere it wasn't something that was used everywhere it wasn't something that was valued everywhere but it certainly really helped people so it's showing that um you know it's kind of going back to that you know the wobble room as a kind of as a, 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 a kind of weird extension of gallows humor you know that idea mm-hmm. of just being able to just have that letting off steam so that you can just then have a chance to just unwind with it. Mm, yeah, and actually, really interesting,
0: the last podcast um, episode I did with Felicity Thau was about um, talking about our failures as physio. And if I take it now to the very different context in that a lot of people listening to this podcast um, may be working in the NHS in the teams, as you describe, and a lot will be working on their own in clinic rooms. Um, and we were talking about the fact that we don't even mention our failures and in inverted commas. And we label them failures because we don't have any other reference point other than ourselves. When our perception is that, you know, ours was the only input with this person. Yeah. Therefore, if something goes wrong, it's definitely our fault. And, and without that um, ability to talk about the other people in that person's life, never mind all the other health professionals, but their family, their kids, all the other that influence that their their well-being um it can become as you say incredibly internalized um and i'd forgotten about the the wobble room even though i was actually involved in yeah. some of those in the, in the pandemic but um we we've been just mooting ideas with a bit of sort of rice mile um, felicity at the end of her podcast said what we need is the society of average physios um, and somebody's actually formed a facebook group called oh, really that. brilliant yeah <laughs> Kind of a version of a wobble room isn't it space Where you can just come out and go oh, I did this thing today I was such an idiot um and for everyone to go yeah um I done that too or gosh that must have been awful let's talk about it let's laugh about it um and that that safe container for those feelings really
1: yeah there's um there's an analogy that I think works really well here so there's um there's a really well-known trauma expert called Babette Rothschild She's Mm. written a number of books and she talks about this idea of having a Coke bottle. So if you have a kind of a a Coke bottle that's shaken up, Mm. it's just going to explode. But if you just release it a little bit at a time, then it just lets it out. Mm. And and I think that's where I see that camaraderie at work, that if you can have that space to just vent and air things out in a safe space, that it's not going to be taken out of context, then that can just have that bit of release. Mm -hmm. Um, But when that's taken away for either because departments are too busy, or because people are working on their own, I think, you know, a lot of that happens in general practice, people are just kind of stuck on their own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so true what you say that that idea about making mistakes, you know, because we don't, have that comparison with someone else and we don't if we don't share that then we can just think it's us that doesn't know properly or that we've we've done it wrong and that we're inadequate in some way whereas actually we're just normal and, mm. and so sharing that can just be so so helpful
0: yeah definitely so we can talk a little bit more in a moment about things we can do to help ourselves and support others but um how might people Will recognize that they were suffering from some kind of former processing problem?
1: Um, so it's quite a big question. Um, Sorry. <laughs> yeah, right. So essentially, I mean, there's lots of different ways. There's, it may be, um, it may be something really obvious. So it may be that somebody, has gone through something that is recognized as being really traumatic um so it may be that they've for example that they've been through um a really bad car accident or train accident or you know something like that uh and they're just struggling to um Uh, get beyond it and Mm. and get back to work and get back to having relationships, um, friendships and and feel like they're getting back to function. And that that's something that's persisting for more than a few weeks. So it's understanding, it's going back to what we're saying at the beginning that this is a normal response to an abnormal situation. You know, it's normal that for example, if you're in a car accident, you're gonna be affected. That's obviously gonna happen. That makes us human. But if it's something that is lingering and there's something just persisting and staying for weeks and weeks and weeks, then that would be something that I would I would question. But it's then thinking if something, you know, that, like I mentioned earlier, what a typical response to trauma or a traumatic event, if it's something that's really affected us to just minimize it and to kind of compartmentalize it and put it away and diminish it as a it wasn't really that bad other people have worse stuff happen. I'm okay. I'm here. So I just need to get on with it. Mm. So if then we find that we are thinking about that situation a lot, or that we're having certainly nightmares about it, or if we find that we're avoiding doing things, you know, coming back to, you know, that really simple example of having a car accident, if that's on your way to work and you just notice you're just always taking a different route and you're not going down that route it's like well there's something there's kind of something potentially that's there um but for some people it's it's something that's so pushed down and ignored that it can be really delayed so it can be something that people don't really recognize and acknowledge for years even decades Mm -hmm. and that's extremely common so It may be that somebody, for example, um, I mean, basically it can come out in, you know, endless numbers of ways. But it can be with really vague ongoing physical symptoms. Um, So it can be, for example, and this is not to say that everybody who has these symptoms has experienced trauma, but there's a big overlap. So it may be somebody who's experiencing chronic pain. It may be somebody who's experiencing gut symptoms like IBS. It may be somebody who's experiencing um, autoimmune conditions. It may be somebody who's experiencing things like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue. Um, It may also be somebody who is appearing to function really well, but really struggling to maintain relationships. Mm
0: -hmm. It may
1: be somebody who um, looks like they're doing really well at work, but they actually just never stop working. They never go home. They're always busy. They always say yes to everything. And they're being so busy to fill their life so much that they don't have time to stop and feel what's going on. Mm -hmm. And it may be the opposite. It may be that they withdraw and they're really struggling to work and have the motivation to work. So it's a whole host of things. Um, it It can look like resistant depression and it can look like resistant anxiety usually kind of a combination of both Mm. but it, it can be kind of all or nothing and it's understanding that it people can function really well and not only appear to function but they can function and then have this side where they're really struggling and feel that that duality is somehow wrong and that that means there's something wrong with them. And often then because of that, they don't say anything about it and think, well, it's just me and there's something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. Actually, there tends to often be something underlying that, which you absolutely can get support with and get better from and heal from. Mm -hmm. So the the important thing to understand is there's absolutely a way out. It doesn't mean that someone needs to sit with that all the time um, and that that's, that's just how they are. Um, and just to reiterate again, it doesn't mean that everybody who has all of those symptoms has trauma in the yeah. background. And um, that's yeah. really important to say that.
0: Well, thanks so, so much, Susanna. That, that was a big question. I, I, I realised and um, apologise, but your answer was brilliant. And um, I'm sure everybody listening is the same. But as you were talking, so many people in my life and past life were coming into my mind then. Um, and what you said at the end was important, too, that it doesn't mean that all those people are suffering from trauma, but this It's a tricky problem, isn't it? Because there's elements of um, all sorts of personalities that that rings bells for. Yeah, brilliant answer. So on the back of that then, um, what sorts of things, and I'm sure this is an equally big question, what sorts of things might we do now to, if we personally thought we might be suffering from some element of trauma or if we're trying to support somebody close to us who might be, who we feel might be suffering. Yeah. I appreciate that could be on a whole spectrum of severity.
1: Yeah. So I think it's, it's understanding if we've, if we've either personally or we can see with clients or patients really efficiently packed it up and packaged it up and kind of put it away, hmm. unpacking that takes skill and time and it's not something to be undertaken lightly. So it's really important to just thinking about that Coke bottle again. If you suddenly take the lid off, it's going to explode and that's going to be really difficult. So really being really if you suspect it either in yourself or in someone around you being really, really gentle Mm. and just giving space to that. That's that's really important. So if it's somebody if it's something that you suspect in someone around you, in a client or or in a patient or someone, someone close to you. sometimes just asking that question is there something that's happened in your past that you're still thinking about a lot or really preoccupies you a lot Mm. um often then that gets someone kind of thinking well actually there is um sometimes just that suggestion that maybe there's a link with somehow some of your struggles to move on some of your physical symptoms some of your anger outbursts some of your ability to not leave work on time may be related to that and you might find that someone says don't be ridiculous not at all Mm. and then they're just not ready and you just have to accept that so someone needs to come to it an individual needs to come to that point on their own and you can't force that anyone to, to come to that um if someone's interested in looking further then um speaking to your to your gp would be a good point to start and just kind of asking about that there's there is more awareness around that now um there are a number of helpful books to think about that that maybe you could list that that we can have a think about so there's um There's one that's that's very well known called The Body Keeps the Score by psychiatrist Bessel van der Kolk. Um, There's another one called Healing Trauma that's a very thin book by um, uh, somebody called Peter Levine. Um, They're really good starting points to just start to explore that and to just to start kind of thinking about that. yeah there's a clinician another Canadian clinician called Gabor Mate um, mm. and he's got a number of books and also a number of um, videos and interviews on YouTube that that are also worth exploring and he's got a film out called um, The Wisdom of Trauma that's kind of you can watch through various social media channels that's worth worth having a look at um, but there are a number of things then that we can do ourselves to try and help on and, and that we can kind of Um, recommend to somebody to to help them so essentially when we are if we are um, uh, have experienced psychological trauma and where there's consequences of it down the line so where we haven't kind of fully processed it what happens is that immediate response is an acute stress response and that should like I said earlier that should happen that gets her to survive but when it's not switched off it goes on to become a chronic stress issue. And when we have chronic stress in our bodies, that leads to inflammation. So if you think about inflammation as being like a fire, like, you know, if you imagine like um, an insect bite or a a cut from something kind of gardening or something that's uh, starting to get a little bit infected where it looks hot and swollen and angry. If you imagine that kind of happening throughout the body and the brain, so neuroinflammation as well, Everything can function, but it's just not gonna function to its best ability. And depending on where that comes out more, then you're gonna have different symptoms. So if there's more neuroinflammation, that may come out more like anxiety and depression. If there's more in the body, then it might be more pain or more gut issues or autoimmune conditions. So the aim is really to try and calm inflammation. So if we calm inflammation and calm the nervous system, then we're going to feel better. So very quick and easy way to, to calm the nervous system and therefore calm inflammation is by doing breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. So doing really simple breathing exercises, just even a couple of minutes at a time, and even doing that, you know, even once a day, but if you can do it like four times a day, that is a really, really, really great place to start that, absolutely will have an impact straight away and can really help to start rewiring the brain
0: mm-hmm.
1: so there's breathing exercises that people can look up there's box breathing or four seven breathing probably the best known ones and they're really easy to do um, so four sevens breathing is where you settle somewhere where you feel safe and you breathe in for the count of four and out for the count of seven and it's trying to use not just your kind of upper chest to breathe, but trying to use your whole lungs and making your belly move when you're breathing. So, in for the count of four and out for the count of seven, and just doing that for one or two minutes and doing that a few times a day if possible. I put reminders on my phone to remember to do it. Mm. Um, and then, if you do that as a regular practice, then when you're feeling particularly anxious or something difficult's happened or you've had a difficult client or something, then you can just quickly do, do a couple of rounds of that breathing. And because it's familiar to your brain and body, then it just kicks in and works really quickly.
0: So what's the,
1: this is such a horrid
0: question, I apologise. What's the physiology behind that then? So a breathing exercise to actually settle
1: neuroinflammation. How does that work physiologically? So the stress response is in a kind of, a, in a simplistic way, is mediated by the sympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. so within the nervous system within our bodies we have the voluntary nervous system so you know me saying i you know i want to move my hand and i'm volunteering you know i'm I'm voluntarily doing that and our autonomic nervous system which is kind of automatic so that controls our breathing and our digestion and our um our heart rate um and it also um um mediates our, our survival response because if you think about it if a lion was to jump through whatever window you're in, you don't want your thinking brain to go, but we're in England. Why would a lion be coming through the window? You want to get to safety. So it's um, the part of the brain that mediates all of this is called the limbic system. So it's a primitive part of the brain that reacts a split second before your thinking brain. And that's all designed so that we survive. So that survival response is mediated by the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So the sympathetic branch is all to do with kind of everything being heightened and hyper. So it heightens all of our senses, it increases our heart rate, our breathing rate, and um, it diverts blood to the areas that are needed for survival, like your big muscles, your heart, your lungs. And it diverts blood away from the areas that are not needed for immediate survival, like your gut and your reproductive system. Because if a lion's chasing you, you, whether you digest your food is irrelevant. Mm. What should happen is then when the threat passes, then if you look in the animal kingdom, what they do is they shake to discharge the excess adrenaline. And then the body goes back to homeostasis what we tend to do as humans is to suppress that because it's we're embarrassed and and culturally societally we don't kind of shake or or discharge that immediately we hold it all in and suppress it down and that's when we start to have issues because it's not processed properly so with the breathing exercise when you breathe using your belly which you, means you're using your diaphragm to breathe. So that, that domed muscle that separates the lungs and the abdominal cavity. And when you breathe out for longer than you breathe in, they both engage the parasympathetic nervous system, which is if you like the other side of that nervous system, they can't really work together. So it's either sympathetic is like the fight, flight, freeze response. And the parasympathetic is, is nicknamed the rest and digest. So you can change your breathing. You know, we have, we both, so this is the thing with breathing. It's both automatic and, and something subconscious, but it's also something we've got full control over. So by us changing our breathing and using our bellies to breathe and breathing out for longer and slowing our breathing down, we can force our nervous system to switch into the parasympathetic state, which then starts to regulate the nervous system it starts to bring the gut online, the reproductive system online to get everything kind of going back to homeostasis.
0: Mm. I really hope I've just uh, asked you to explain things that people at home have gone. Oh, yes, yes, I knew that. Um, actually, no, I don't hope that. I apologize if it was that but I hope that I just asked the question that everyone thinks they sort of know what you're going to say, but it's, it's so helpful to have it explained. Gosh, it's brilliant. If you I can just imagine you in front of a patient explaining that yeah. and, and make total sense, but you do hear a lot from patients, oh, everyone tells me to do exercises and they make me worse. If anyone tells me to do the exercise again, I'm going to yeah. um, do this, that and the other. So it's you know, that kind of explanation explanation, and the revision of that for me, as <laughs> physio actually is really helpful. Thank you. Um slight diversion again. You mentioned um Gabal Mate. Um and I've I've read his book. Uh oh, you might remember the title Susan, it's not my turn at the moment. Um it's one he he talks about generational trauma in it. He might talk about that in When interview. the
1: body when the body says no.
0: No, it wasn't that one.
1: In the realm of hungry ghosts. No, keep going. <laughs> um it'll
0: come to me while we're talking. I I remember when the book was recommended to me. The person who recommended it very wisely said, "When you read this, don't interpret it that whatever happens with your children is your fault, because that's not what he means." Um, but and I and I did get that, but it was a really hold on to your
1: kids. Is that it? No. <laughs> he's only he's written four. So there's in the realm of hungry ghosts. Scattered minds is about ADHD. Scattered minds. Right. Scattered minds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if it's
0: not, you know, that trauma can be genetically passed down, how do you explain the manifestation of generational trauma as he describes it in that book? Because he talks about, he starts in the book, doesn't he, talking about <coughs> immense trauma in the war as you know, being separated from his mom and um, the, the trauma of being a, a Jew in the war. But then goes on to describe very openly how he, all three of his children have been diagnosed with ADHD. And he describes that as um, uh, an example of generational trauma. So, you know, is it in behaviors? Is there any genetic element? <coughs> What's your understanding of that, process?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's something I, I certainly wouldn't have understood five ten years ago Um, but that concept of generational trauma and epigenetics is something that that we are starting to understand much more now so epigenetics is the idea that our lifestyle and our environment can change our dna so we are born with obviously certain dna but what's expressed and how it's expressed is very much dependent on our lifestyle and our environment So we may have a predisposition towards something, but it may not happen if we change our environment. Mm. So, yeah, so it can get switched on and get switched off. Um, And that's the positive thing. So it means that actually we can heal. Mm. Um, So it's the point of understanding that for me, so my personal life story, when my mother was born in 1942 and she was my grandparents were hungarian german so they were ancestrally german but lived in hungary and had their families have been living in hungary for hundreds of years but they spoke german and the second world war was a horrific time for them and they were refugees and sent back to germany so when my grandmother was pregnant with my mum my in a in a baby, when it's still in utero, it's it has the ovaries. So a baby is born with all of the, the basically the eggs in its body that it will use if if that woman, if that child grows up as a woman and wants to have children. So half of my DNA was in my mum, in my when my grandmother was pregnant. So my DNA will have experienced that trauma that my grandmother went through. And then my mother growing up with that. And so my, how my mother has been affected by that, that will then be in my DNA and then in my children's DNA when my mum was pregnant with me. So that's how that can get passed on. And there's very much we can see, you know, for example, how, <coughs> um, there's a lot of, I mean, they use the second word were a lot for research and looking at epigenetics. Um, For example, there was a lot of um, research done around um, the Dutch Dutch families who experienced, there's a particular winter that's kind of nicknamed the hunger winter, so where where many people starved because there was no food, and Mm -hmm. the descendants of those people, there is a much higher incidence of type 2 diabetes, and -hmm. that's changed their, their DNA expression because they were starved that any food that came in, it was the body kind of held mm-hmm. on to it because they mm-hmm. were starving. So that's then altered the DNA expression so that it will hold on to anything. So then obesity and type 2 diabetes, it makes sense that it will be more prevalent. Mm. So it's understanding kind of the context around it. And like, um, it's fascinating, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it sounds almost like evolution on speed. You know, so
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's something where um, there's a phrase, a kind of term that's used in functional medicine training that I just think so useful to think of. That our our DNA is a loaded gun, but Mm -hmm. our environment and lifestyle pulls the trigger. Mm. And so when people say, oh yeah, but my family had this, that, and the other. So, you know, it's just going to happen to me, that's not the case. You know, we've got the power to change, change what Mm -hmm. happens and change how our bodies express it. Oh, that is really
0: fascinating. But it does also possibly give an explanation. um You know, if, if just thinking about you saying to patients, you know, is there something you remember in your past? And it may not be that they're resistant to talking about something, it may just be that they literally cannot think of something. But mm. if, it, if it is, you know, in a previous generation, the, if the actual, if what's being happened is triggering of a trauma mm. in a previous generation, then that is going to be hard for them to directly piece together, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's rare that there would be, for example, um, say that somebody's grandparent has had some really horrendous trauma history. Mm. And then that when that individual from the moment they were from the moment they were pregnant their parent, their mother was pregnant with them. So the whole pregnancy and their whole childhood, the whole childhood, both parents were completely unaffected by their parents' trauma, mm. and that they were completely wholeheartedly yeah. perfect parent, unaffected. That's really rare. So it may be that there's an element of it being inherited, but it then will have shaped the way that that parent parented that child. Yeah. So there's only when then that parent really takes on board and understands what's going on and they heal their own kind of stuff, that then that can start to impact going forwards. Mm -hmm. and that's not to blame and that's not that's absolutely not to blame the parents It's not to lay any blame anywhere and you know our understanding around this has evolved so much in recent years and for some people you know it's literally just surviving day to day and they don't have the space and ability to explore any of this but it's um I'd always say there's you know there's never just that complete well never rarely that totally kind of pure if you like that it's just generational trauma. It's because yeah. it's impacting going down the line. Yeah, Gosh, I could do a whole podcast on that, Susan. <laughs>
0: I'm aware of time, though. I know you've got to go on your school run, have not you? But um, just to wrap this up, do you do you want to talk a little bit, Susanna, about um, how your work has changed? Because I know you're going through quite an interesting transition at the moment, aren't you? I'm, I'm enjoying watching that from um, from a distance, but. How are you sort of integrating this in your work now?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, when I started learning about this, it was like putting on glasses and just seeing things differently and realising not just people in front of my patients in front of me, but other patients that I would treated in the past and just thinking, could have done that a lot better. Um, and I pick it up all the time, every single day at work. And there are sometimes where there just isn't the time to explore it. Sometimes, um, I mean, I frequently every day print out how to do 4 7 breathing for patients and give them a, like a lifestyle prescription of what to do. Um, and a lot of the time it's just explaining to someone that link that they're not going mad, they're not making up these symptoms, that there is a really clear link to what's going on. Mm -hmm. um and that there are ways around it there's ways that they can help themselves so you know doing breathing exercise and changing what they're eating and you know having less processed food and less sugar and eating more vegetables and getting daylight all of those things that seem very simple but have a huge impact on the body um so it's it's yeah it's changed certainly how I practice day to day in an AE setting but because it's an A&E setting it's very difficult to really have the time to go through it in detail so I have started doing uh, working as a private clinician um, mm-hmm. to combine all of this um, just to have more space so really having the time to properly go through somebody's history and to then be able to follow somebody up because, you know, the problem in A&E, you hopefully only see them once. Um, so being able to follow somebody up and really have an, an ongoing plan with somebody. Um, and for some people, you know, once is enough. And for some people they need a couple of follow-ups and then, you know, we have a plan and they can take that forward. Um, and the other part of that, that I'm starting more recently to explore is looking at teaching. So I teach Around this idea of how psychological trauma impacts um medical school teaching uh, and communication within the healthcare setting to doctors at Brighton Sussex Medical School. Um, but I'm seeing more and more looking in, for example, in the coaching field, how having a trauma-informed awareness of how we can interact with people could really help so i'm i'm exploring teaching more into into those areas just because i think if we can really get as many people as possible to really understand trauma for what it is and not be so afraid of it recognize it so that we then can treat people differently which means that they're going to get to healing quicker and then try and prevent it and the knock on impact for those around them the world's going to be a better place absolutely
0: and uh, I'm so glad there are people like you well I don't know anyone except you doing this Susanna Uh, you're my kind of window into this but yeah hearing you talk about that and that ripple effect Mm. uh, definitely as a coach signing up to your course to to become better trauma informed but can I just say a massive massive thank you on behalf of everyone that you're going to impact with this work because it's so important and I love listening to you talk about it you just explain things so brilliantly and um, take the fear out of trauma which sounds like an oxymoron but um, it's it's so useful to have people like you um, explaining it in the way that you do thank you so much thank you thank you for being a guest on you matter
1: so so much
0: (laughs) I'm sure people will be interested to read more about what you're doing Susanna Um, Susanna is famously shy at um, sharing ways that people can get a hold of her, but I have pinned her down to at least making sure that she shares her website with you. So um, Susanna, can you let people know who will be desperate to find out more and get hold of you, how they can do that?
1: <laughs> yes, and so my website is, is just my name. So it's www.drsusannapetchy.com. So it's dr. dr, and then s-u-s-a-n-n-a-p-e-t-c-h-e.com. And I have an email address um, which is dr at gmail.com. But you can get in contact with me with me through the website. Any kind of questions that you have, um, there's a space to do that. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn with the same Dr. Susanna Pecci. And it'd be great to get in touch, it'd be great to yeah, answer people's questions and and yeah, talk more about trauma.
0: Brilliant. I'll make sure those contact details and the books are. Resources you mentioned go in, go in the notes with the podcast. Thank you so much. I will let you go on your school run.
1: All right. Thanks very <laughs> much, Joe. Take care. Bye. Bye, Susanna.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode. I'm sure you did. And I'm sure, like me, you've learnt an awful lot from Susanna, who's such an expert on the topic of trauma. I'd be really interested to know what you thought and what you're going to take away from this episode. You have any thoughts about how you might take this into your work life um, family life how it's affected you um, I'm sure also that lots of you will want to follow up and check out more of Susanna's work please do go and look at her website if you've got particular questions then get in touch with her she's she's always so willing to to talk and her motivation really is to educate as many people as possible about this topic okay so I will be back for episode fourteen, which is a, a kind of revisit revisit of failure, <laughs> but in a positive way, I'll be looking at ways that we can manage our feelings around failure and, and make sure that it isn't isn't crippling us and making our lives difficult as clinicians. Take care, and in the meantime, if you are a busy clinician looking after people in all spheres of your life, then take a moment for yourself. And don't forget that you might.